institutions have not fared well in recent years in our American culture, whether that is government or education or even the church in popular opinion. In 2021, only 37% of American adults said that they had a great deal or a lot of confidence in the church. That is down from a historic high in 1975 of 68%, and only one percentage point above the lowest number of 36%, which was registered just before the pandemic. 30% of those surveyed said that they have little or no confidence in the church. So if you were to walk out and do a man-on-the-street poll and ask about the church, you would probably meet with a lot of negativity or at least a lot of apathy. But I'm more concerned about what's going on inside those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Lifeway, in their survey, reports that church attendance is down about 15% over the last couple of years, and that even those who claim to be followers of Jesus Instead of attending three or four times a month, they're now attending one or two times a month. I'm concerned that we who are followers of Jesus, not just the culture, that we undervalue the church, that we take it for granted, that we drift along, that maybe we even drift away from it. Whatever the culture thinks, whatever our neglect may say, the reality is that the church is important. And we need to think about why that is the case. And so this fall, we're going to look at a series called Be the Church, what the church is and why the church matters. It is a call for each of us to value it, not just with our words, but with our actions as well. The word church occurs for the first time in the New Testament in Matthew 16, where we just quoted a few moments ago, and I'd invite you to turn there with me. We'll be looking at those verses. It occurs there on the lips of Jesus. Many of you are familiar with the Greek word ekklesia, church. It literally means called out ones, ek kaleo, to call someone out. Called out, but the question is called out for what purpose? Called out for what reason? What is the church really all about? And so over these weeks, especially beginning this morning, I want us to think about that calling out and three facets of our calling out of the world into the church, what it means and why it tells us that the church really does matter. And so let's go back to those verses that we just read together a few minutes ago and see what Jesus has to say to us as he speaks to his disciples. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and we'll pause there, and I want you to hang on to that location for a few minutes. We're going to come back and talk about it. Came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man being the way Jesus often in the Gospel of Matthew refers to himself. Mark and Luke in this parallel simply have him saying, who do our people saying that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in those verses, we see this first facet of our calling out. We are called out by God to God-given faith in Jesus. Peter exemplifies that because he wants us to hear what Peter has to say and to see the reality that our confession is faith alone in Christ alone. That's what Jesus or what Peter says. The disciples are reacting to a question. Jesus asks, who are people saying that I am? And they reply, some are saying you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Because John the Baptist was to be the forerunner of Messiah, they were thinking. And even though Jesus is right in front of them, most of the common people aren't getting who he really is. Some say, well, you're not John the Baptist, you are Elijah. Because Elijah came doing miracles and wonders, and Jesus has done those. Others are saying, well, he's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, probably because Jesus was not afraid to take on the religious authorities and to confront them as the prophets often did. But Jesus asked them, okay, that's popular opinion. Who do you say? That I am. That's the crux of the matter. And it and is for us as well. Who do we say that Jesus is? And Peter, as the spokesman, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is, if you step back and look at it, a breathtaking assertion, a breathtaking confession. You is emphatic. You and you alone are the anointed one, the the Savior that we've been waiting for, the Christ. You are the Son of the God, the living one. You are God in the flesh. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, well, wait, wait a minute, no, back up. Let's not go there. Let's not call me that. He accepts that designation of who they are, of who he is. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Jesus says, you're right, Peter. That's who I am. I am the Savior. I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. That confession, however, is only possible because God was at work in Peter. It's not that Peter was so bright, he's more known for opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. It's not that Peter had seen the signs and he was wowed by them. It's that God worked in Peter's heart and mind and opened his eyes to what most of the nation couldn't see, who Jesus was. And this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, don't think it's because you are just so much better than people around you. Don't think that you're brighter. You're just able to see who Jesus is when they can't. It's that God worked in your life. That God opened your eyes. He drew you to himself. He caused you to come to faith in Jesus. Our confession is faith alone in Christ alone. But that God-given faith is God-given. It is not only our confession, but... Our foundation is faith alone in Christ alone. The foundation of the church 
is the person and work of Jesus Christ, what he did for us. And so we get to this hard part of the text now. Because in 2,000 plus years of church history, the debate over what Jesus is saying has not yet been completely settled. Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. What is the rock? Well, the Catholic Church says the rock is Peter. That Peter was the first pope and that because of that the church is founded on him and on his successors. There are a number of problems with that. The number one problem is that nowhere in the book of Acts do we see Jesus or see Peter functioning as Pope. Nowhere do we see him exerting authority over all of the other apostles and declaring all the beliefs. We see Peter being important in the early church, but not a Pope. It's also a problem because the word, the name, Peter, Petros, is masculine. And this rock is Petra, it's feminine, a rocky ridge. And so is Peter the rocky ridge? Grammatically, it doesn't necessarily seem to be true. You can read some good men, men without the trappings of the papacy, that will say it is really Peter that's being referred to here. But when they talk about that, they're really giving what is, I think, a better option, not the best option, but a better option, that Peter, as the spokesman for the the apostles, is speaking and Jesus is saying, you, Peter, as part of the apostles, are what I'm going to found my church on. Because remember, Jesus said, who do you, plural, say that I am? So Peter's not speaking just for himself, he's speaking for the whole group. And there is some biblical evidence that could support it. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So you can argue from that. Foundationally, they are important to the church. But even in this passage, who's the rock? Who's the cornerstone? It's Jesus that's the cornerstone. So it could be, and people argue, that Jesus says, you are Peter, and on myself I am founding my church. And that is certainly true. The church is founded on Jesus. But is that what's really happening here? I really think that the best option is that Jesus is saying, you are Peter, And on this rock of what you have just professed, your confession of faith in me, I will build my church. And in saying that, what we're saying is that you must believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, to be part of the church, the large universal church. No one enters that without faith in Christ alone. Which is also why, if you come and want to be part of Berean Baptist Church, we will have you meet with a couple of our deacons, maybe a couple of them and their wives, to talk about your faith. We want to make sure that your faith is in Christ alone for your salvation, so that we can say confidently, you are part of the church, we welcome you into our church because of your faith in Christ alone. It also tells us that A church can be wrong about their structure of church governance, their ecclesiology. 
They can be wrong about eschatology, when Jesus is coming back and what that looks like. But they cannot be wrong about the person and work of Jesus Christ, or they're not the church. So a group that says, well, we're a church, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Savior, the only way to God, the Son of God, they're not really a church. Because the church's foundation is faith alone in Christ alone. How important is the church? We've been called out by God to God-given faith in Jesus When Jesus left this earth, he didn't leave behind any great works of art. He didn't leave behind any monuments that he built. We don't have any plaques on houses. Jesus lived here, slept here. Even the cave where he supposedly was born and the mountain where he was crucified and the cave where he was buried, even those are disputed. But you know what he left? The church. So that you and I, as members of the church, as we confess faith in Christ alone and we live our lives based on faith in Christ alone, we are actually, what Paul says, the works of art that Jesus left behind. And as we profess our faith, we show him to the world. The church is important. A man wrote into Reader's Digest a while back and told how his pastor went into a local coffee shop and sat down to have a cup of coffee next to a man who was reading the paper. And the man looked up, and this particular pastor wore the clerical garb. He looked over, and he said, oh, you're a pastor. Yeah? Where are you a pastor? And the pastor said, oh, that church right there across the road. The man said, wow, that's the church I attend. And the pastor said, really? He said, I, I've been there five years. I don't think I've ever seen you. The man said, well, I didn't say I was a fanatic. But shouldn't we be fanatics about the church? More than just fans, we ought to be committed. It is what God has called out and given faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first facet of our calling out that shows what the church is and why it's important. The second one is that we are called out by God to God-given victory because of Jesus. What we are told by Jesus in this passage is that he is building his church. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Which is pretty amazing because there is no church when he says that. It's the first time the word's used. There won't be a church until after his death and his resurrection and then the sending of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus says, it is certain. I am going to build my church. I like to think about the fact that that's the present construction project of our carpenter king. He's building his church. That's what he's engaged in. Every time a person comes to faith in Jesus, he's building his church. That's part of what I think Acts has in mind when it says in Acts 2, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord was building his church. And he's still doing that today. As people come to faith in Jesus, he's building his church. 
And please notice, it is his church. It's not Bill Abernathy's church. It's not your church. It's not Josh Greiner's church. It is Jesus' church. And even more than that, please notice that he's not ashamed to be identified with his church. Has the church failed over the years? Have we done some really bad things in the name of Jesus over the years? Yes. Do we mess up and make mistakes? Yes. And there are people today who would say, well, I follow Jesus, but I don't want to be identified with the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. He identifies with his church. That's how important it is to him. Father walked by his young son's room one day and saw through the open door that his son was building something with Legos. And so he walked in and he said to him, what are you building? And his son said, shh. I'm building a church. Father said, okay. Why are we whispering? Son said, because everybody's asleep. (laughs) Now maybe that happens on a Sunday morning occasionally. But it should not be what characterizes the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is not. There may be individual churches that are asleep. But the church, Jesus' church, is not asleep. In fact... Jesus' church is on an unstoppable mission. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. Again, you can get a lot of debate over what does that phrase mean. The gates of a city were where the armies would come out. The gates of the city were where the leaders would meet to plan But I think really what we have here is a figure of speech. If you remember your English classes, it's a metonymy where a part of something stands for the whole. And so he uses the gates of hell to say, hell itself, the realm of the dead itself, will not prevail against my church. He wants us to understand that his church is on an unstoppable mission. Remember I asked you earlier, to hang on to where this is all happening? Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was, in the Old Testament, a center of the worship of the false god Baal. Later, it was the center of worship for a god named Pan. Now it is an almost totally Gentile region dominated by, from the name, Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, one of the tetrarchs, Philip. And so it's dominated by Gentile powers, and yet Jesus chooses this location for this amazing conversation about who he is and what he is building. In essence, what he is saying is, guys, we're invading enemy territory. My church will invade the the territory of the enemy, Satan, and hell itself will not be able to stand against it. Jesus is leading his church, invading the darkness, and it all hangs, seems like it hangs in the balance, but it doesn't. The victory's been won. It doesn't always feel that way, does it? I mean, when you read, culture doesn't think very highly of the church, or you watch churches do things in the name of Jesus, and you think, oh, don't do that. Or you watch the influence of churches waning in a culture. But Jesus says, I'm building my church. 
And all of the powers of this world and the next cannot stop it. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie you've seen a number of times, maybe one of the Marvel movies, and and everything seems bleak, and Thor is in trouble, or Captain America is in trouble, or they're all losing. But you're not worried because you know the end of the story. Or you're watching a Star Wars movie and the hero or the heroine is, is in great jeopardy, but you're not worried. You know the end of the story. And so we come and we see the church not valued and we see the church often in weakness, but we know the end of the story. Jesus' church wins because Jesus has won the victory. When the United States of America is a memory, When Joe Biden and Donald Trump are footnotes in history, the church will remain. When your house and my house are rubble, when our money is burned up, when no one cares who won the big game, the church will still be here. We are called out by God to God-given victory, not in ourselves, but because of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to work on what Jesus is working on, to be working on adding people to the church, sharing the gospel. I want you to work on supporting not just the church, but this church. And ask myself, is what I'm doing building up or is it tearing down what Jesus is building? And I want to encourage you because in a time of transition, of pastors, it's really easy for people to just kind of step back and drift away and even drift off. Don't do that. Even if you didn't vote for Pastor Josh, give him a chance. Come and build what God is building, his church and this local church of Berean Baptist Church. Because the church will complete its mission by God's power. But will you be part of it? Are you part of it? Have you made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If not, I don't care where your membership is. You're not part of the church. But that can change today. If you place your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to to talk to somebody before you leave about that if you've never done it. And if you are part of the church, serve her. Get involved. Build what Jesus is building. There's a third facet of what we are called out to do and to be that shows the importance of the church. We are called out by God for God-given authority through Jesus. The church is important because God has invested through Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, with authority. In fact, Jesus tells us the church has the authority to open the door to knowing God. Now again, we're getting into a passage that's kind of disputed. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What in the world is he talking about? What are the the keys of the kingdom? This is, by the way, where where you get all the jokes about St. Peter standing at the door of heaven asking people. This is where it comes from. Because God talks to Peter about the keys of the kingdom. But what he's really saying is, I am giving you the keys of the kingdom, the ability through the gospel, 
to open access to the king and the kingdom. See, the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom's bigger than the church. But as the church, we have the privilege of introducing people to the king and telling them about his kingdom. And we have the authority to say, based on God's word, if you have repented of your sin and you have turned in faith to Jesus Christ and you're trusting in what he did on the cross, then you are a member of the kingdom. You're a member of God's church. Not because I say so, but because God says so. We have authority given by Jesus Christ to open the door and say to those around us, you can know God personally through faith in Jesus Christ. Now the primary reference here, because the you here is singular, the primary reference here is to Peter. Not as Pope, not as the guy standing at the gates of heaven, but as the guy who in the book of Acts does indeed open the doors. In Acts chapter 2, he preaches about Jesus as Messiah and thousands come to know Christ as Savior and enter the church. In Acts chapter 8, he goes to Samaria where there's been a work of God and as he is working with those people and talking to them, the Holy Spirit comes on them and baptizes them into the church. In Acts chapter 10, he goes to the Gentiles. So we have Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, the three basic people groups in Jewish thinking. He goes to the Gentiles in Acts 10, and as he is preaching to Cornelius and his household, they come to faith in Christ, and the Spirit falls on them, and they are baptized into the church. And while it is primarily a reference to Peter, it's true for all of us as followers of Jesus. We, on the authority of heaven can share the gospel with people and welcome them into the kingdom of God. The church of Jesus Christ is invading enemy territory and freeing captives. has the authority to open the door to knowing God, but the church also has the authority to carry out heaven's decisions. Jesus gives the authority to bind and loose what has already been bound and loosed in heaven. In essence, what he is saying is whatever, whatever's already taken place, those captives who've already been freed by faith in Jesus, you now have the authority to tell them they are free. But more than that, it's a carrying out of a more broad decisions of heaven. For example, in the book of Acts, Peter says to the crippled man at the temple, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man does, not in Peter's authority, but in Jesus. But even more telling is Acts chapter 5. Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And if you know the story, you know that Ananias and his wife Sapphira had sold land and then they brought part of the money and said, this was all we got because they wanted people to be impressed. Why have you lied to God? So you haven't lied to me, Peter says. You've lied to God. 
And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard of it. Peter was not exercising Peter's authority. He was exercising the authority of God. Even more clear, and we won't take the time to go there, but a little later, Sapphira, the wife, comes in, and Peter says, did you sell the land for this amount? And she says, yes, we did. And he says, you have conspired with your husband to lie, and the men who carried your husband's body out are coming to carry yours out, and she falls down dead. Is Peter exercising papal authority? No. He is simply binding on earth what has already been bound by the judgment of God in heaven. So that the church has the authority to say, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we believe you are a follower of Jesus, part of the larger church, and we welcome you into our church. But the church also has the authority to say, in what we typically call church discipline, you are a member of our church, but your lifestyle is not what a follower of Jesus should be living And you have resisted calls to repent, and because you have resisted that in our judgment, we believe you are not genuinely a follower, and so we are removing you from membership because we don't think you're a follower of Jesus. Are we doing that in our authority? No, we're doing that in his authority. Jesus even says that in Matthew 18. He uses the same language of church and loosing and binding If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Not hated, but as a person who is outside. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So it's not our own authority. We are simply using the authority that's been delegated to us. By God himself. Does the church always get it right? No. Is it a heavy responsibility? Yes. But it is one that Jesus has entrusted to his church. And that just reminds us how important he views the church that he has given us, God-given authority through Jesus The church is Jesus' tool for accomplishing his work in this world. So are you part of what Jesus is leading? Are you part of what he is using? Are you part of what he's building? If you've never trusted Christ, I can answer that question for you. The answer is no, but that can change today. Even right where you're seated, you can simply bow your head and admit to God that you're a sinner and ask him to save you, not because of anything you've done, but based on what Jesus Christ did when he died and rose again to pay for your sins and mine. And if you say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, then are you on mission and serving God? We'll talk more about that, the Lord willing, next week, also from the Gospel of Matthew. In 1775, the sailing ship Octavius was found drifting off the coast of Greenland. It had been lost for 13 years. When it was found, it was covered in ice, and the crew were all frozen to death on the ship. The captain's log stated that they had planned to sail through the Northwest Passage. Something had never been done at that point. And they indeed did make it through the Northwest Passage, but not alive. 
all frozen to death. Someone writing about it called it a drifting sepulcher manned by a frozen crew. And later some wit said, well, that would be a good description of the church. A drifting sepulcher manned by a frozen crew. I want to suggest to you that may be true in some local churches, but it is not true of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is his called out people, called out by God to God-given faith, God-given victory for God-given authority in and because of and through Jesus Christ. And so we say all of that to simply say the church matters to Jesus. Does it matter to us? Will we be the church? Will it show in our actions? Will it show in our attendance? Will it show in our giving? Will it show in our serving? Yes, the church matters. And I will be the church. Let's pray. In this quiet moment, I just want you to ask yourself whether, first of all, you're part of the church, whether you've placed your faith in Jesus. If not, I encourage you to talk to one of us before you leave. Or if you did that seated where you are earlier, talk to one of us. But if you would say, yes, I am part of the church, are you working in the local church? Are you serving? Are you helping? Doing what you can do in the power of Christ to help to build his church. So Father, help us, each one of us, to live out what we profess. That if we are followers of Jesus, that we live out our faith in the context and the encouragement and the help of other believers. That we represent you well as ambassadors of your kingdom and members of your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.